This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle, and this is the week of January 31st, 2022. Uh, But before we jump into it, uh, we're going to do something that I haven't cleared with Emily, uh, but uh, we don't really do much, and that's like check in with each other. So, Emily, how are you? I am uh, I'm doing all right, although I had to um, basically skate across a parking lot <laughs> to get to where my microphone was today. Um, so I, uh, I risked life and limb to uh, be here with you all in your in your earbuds or wherever. Um, no, but I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Um, and how are you, Kyle? Well, I'm doing fine. Good. <laughs> um, I realize I asked you. Uh, yeah. I'm doing good. Uh, we don't we don't really get that, you know, out here in Colorado. Um, here we have snow, and then the snow melts. Like it snows in the morning, and then it melts by the afternoon. Not like when I lived in Indiana, though. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, in the Midwest, it like it snows. Yeah. And then it just stayed there from like October until May. Yeah. The why Indiana? My maybe my least favorite is like the New York City like snow that turns into brown like slush sludge that oh, stays yeah. there forever, mm-hmm. just forever. Um, yeah, no, that just like doesn't happen here in Denver. Yeah, uh, in, up in the high country, it, they, there's snow that sticks around, but that's because it's at altitude, you know. But but down here, yeah, mm-hmm. clears out pretty quick. Yeah, no, that that sounds nice. I we. I, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to petition to have that here, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll send it your way. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we can get to the Jeopardy now. Uh, you know, we're trying out something new. Um, let us know if you like it or if you're, you know, if we're if we're nothing to you, if you're just here for the Jeopardy, then I guess you can let us know, too. They just want the Jeopardy. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's probably fair. We've done it for like 110 episodes. Mm-hmm. So but anyway. This is Monday, January 31st, 2022, and we have the contestants Riley Timrick, a student from Houston, Texas, Matthew McElroy, a high school history teacher from Wildwood, New Jersey, and Jay Foster, an engineer from Rancho Palos Verdes, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $13,600. And we have the Jeopardy! categories Big Names on Campus, From Book to TV, State Capital History, Stupid Answers, Ballet and ends in a silent T. True or false? Uh, Matthew McElroy's last name is what inspired you to get a little more personal. <laughs> um, uh, not, not consciously, uh, but I, uh, but maybe. Um, yeah, no, uh, I, I think I've I've mentioned many times on the podcast. I think mm-hmm. uh, that I listen to the McElroy family of podcast podcasters. Yeah, yeah, I think it's both. Family of podcast who also make podcasts or yeah. Yeah, I think it is both. Um, but yeah, I, I've mentioned that a lot. But no, that's not the reason uh, that I wanted to. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think Matthew is related to the podcasting McElroy's. Mm. But if he is, that would be pretty sweet. 
That would be, yes. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of uh, families that make podcasts uh, in the from book to TV category at the $800 level, a Hulu miniseries was based on this John Green novel with Miles Halter in search of the titular Ms. Young. Uh, Riley got that one. Is looking for Alaska. The Green brothers also are a podcasting family with a family of podcasts. Um, yeah. Uh, Kyle, Kyle's the big uh, McElroy fan, although I've listened to a McElroy podcast in my day. Um, and I, I, I've got the, the Green Brothers pretty much covered. So, <laughs> so there we go. If it comes up. Yeah. Yeah, we've, we, can, mm-hmm. uh, we pretty much got it between the two of us. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned many times on the podcast how I can't stand stupid answers. Yeah. And we have this category again. I just, I don't, mm, I don't like it when it's just like, hey, don't think. You people who work so hard to get on Jeopardy, now you just don't think. Yeah. Which might be, I guess, like, the ultimate trivia test is, like, you expect to come in here and think? Haha, we will turn it around on you now. Now you should not think. Like, I, I don't know. I don't get it. I just, I don't know. I don't like that category. Yeah. I did appreciate Riley's attempt at the $1,000 level. The clue there was the flag that Betsy Ross sewed for the new union of the colonies in 1777 had 13 stars in the top inner corner, the area called this. Um, and Riley tried, what is the top inner corner? <laughs> yeah, it was good. <laughs> Great, right? Like, that's, that's a stupid answer, right? Like, right. That's... Like, what you would think it would be from that category. Right. Uh, so, the union is the top inner corner. If you're into vexillology... You know that, mm-hmm. but I've heard that, but I keep forgetting it. Yeah, I thought it was field. That's what I went for. Ooh, um, what I've heard field, but I don't know what that is. Field is like the backdrop color. That's oh. what I'm seeing. Okay, then. Yeah. I suppose that makes sense. If I remember correctly, Riley talked during the interview section about... Something related to dance. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was fun true. seeing her get those uh, those ballet clues correct. Right. Although she talked, was it tap that mm-hmm. she talked about? Yeah, she wanted to be a tap. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, oh, but actually, Jay got more of them. Jay got the 200 and 400 and the, and the 1,000. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, um, which probably miffed Riley a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know when I was on stage, uh, any like classical music or composer question that I missed, I was like, oh, that's supposed to be mine. Yeah. Meanwhile, everyone who managed to, to get a classical music question while you were on the stage was like, yeah, I got in there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one is in that from book to TV category, and Riley finds it as the eighth pick it's at the 600 dollars level uh she has 200 to matthew's 1800 jay is at zero um she wagers just the 200 could have gone up to a thousand but just goes yeah. with the 200 um and gets the clue baston bastonia baston baston was an episode of this war set miniseries based on stephen ambrose's book and she thinks about it for a minute and then says, I don't know. Um, they are looking for Band of Brothers. Yeah. Uh, if she listened to our episode from last week. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, when I when I mentioned Band of Brothers in the quiz, 
Yeah, just leap forward. Right. In the timeline. Yeah, yeah, and listen to me talk about Stephen Ambrose. Uh, anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jay's at 4,400, Matthew's at 4,600, Riley's at 1,800, so she'll pick first in Double Jeopardy, where the categories are Outlaws, Psychology Literature, Alliteration, Surnames, Music Biopic Subjects, and On the Map with M in quotation marks. Each correct response will begin with the letter M. We had a pretty unfortunate, like, uh, almost correct response in the uh, music biopic subjects category at the $800 level. Uh, the clue is La Bamba, this early rock and roller who died young, tragically. Uh, Riley rang in and said, who is Ricky Valens? Uh, but that's incorrect. Matthew got in with the rebound with Richie Valens. Like, pretty clearly she knew who she was talking about. She just got the name wrong enough. Yeah, I think they would have had to take Valens if she had just said Valens, right? Like, that's a yeah. reasonable guess of how to pronounce right. the last name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's close enough, uh, but the inclusion of Ricky yeah. is just clearly wrong. Yep. At the $1,600 level, that one just came up in Learned League. In 1880, Bush Ranger Ned Kelly and his gang briefly captured the township of Glen Rowan in what's now this country. Um, and Jay got that one. It's Australia. Um, we just, I think, had a Learned League question in the World History Mini League where they described an Australian outlaw and you were supposed to produce the name Ned Kelly. So, yeah, I didn't maybe had heard of him, but having him come up twice in a week has helped me, I think. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I knew him from a movie, I think. I don't remember when I watched it. I'm sure my mom made me watch it when I was the kid, but it has stuck with me, that name. Um, for some reason, I'm just picturing a guy in weird armor walking down a railroad track, and that's Ned Kelly. Hmm. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the On the Map category, with the M in quotation marks at the $2,000 level. Uh, it's pick number four in the round, and Jay finds it. He is at 5600 uh, Matthew is at 3,800 and Riley is at 1,800 and he bets it all. It is the right move. Yeah. And he gets the clue known for coffee before 1917. This Venezuelan port city struck oil and became a big deal. And he gets it correct with what is Maracaibo. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is in the surnames category at the $1,200 level. And uh, Matthew finds this one at the 27th pick. At this point, he has 12,600. Jay's at 16,400. Riley's at 200. Matthew wagers 3,000, which will put him almost in the lead if he, you know, close to the lead if he gets it correct, um, but not quite. He gets the clue. The name Chevrolet goes back to a word for this animal or perhaps one who kept them. And Matthew tried what is a gazelle, um, but that's not correct. Uh, it's goats. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, if you think of chevre, like the cheese, <laughs> goat cheese. Yeah. Sure. Uh, that would be one way in. Okay. If, if cheese is your main reference point for things, which <laughs> right. apparently mine is. Uh, <laughs> well, that's okay. Yeah. You can love cheese. Um, yeah. Yeah. I. So, does this have the same root as, like, chevalier? Because that's what it 
made me think of and like i think that one is a little bit like i think it has a different root word that is maybe for horses but i don't yeah. i don't know well that's what i thought I, it made me think of like mm-hmm. uh like cavalier and so i thought it must be horse yeah mm-hmm. yeah but apparently it's goats yeah that makes that makes sense i wonder why that is yeah there's no way of knowing uh, so that drops him down a little bit, uh, and at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Jay is at 16,400, Matthew is at 10,400, and Riley is in the game at 200. We have the final Jeopardy category, Women Who Write, and the clue, Mimicking Her Style, a 1912 rejection note read, quote, Only one look. Only one look is enough. Hardly one copy would sell here. Hardly one. Uh, Riley wrote, Who is Plath? And that is incorrect, and she wagered all 200. Matthew began writing who is Austin, but uh, crossed it out, which ended up being incorrect. And he wagered 9,999. And Jay wrote who is Virginia Woolf, and that is also incorrect. Uh, But he made a cover bet of 4,401, so he uh, is the winner. And the correct response was... Gertrude Stein, which Marianne Borer, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Marianne Borer did a great deep dive about her. That's in our back catalog. Yeah, I I considered Virginia Woolf uh, for this. Yeah, it's the right time period. Yeah, but I also thought of Gertrude Stein. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah, it seems to me they could have just sent a form letter. Yeah, though, right? Like making making a point of writing like a uh, personalized. <laughs> rejection note to make fun of someone's writing style it's so yeah it's so petty you could have said something nice like we're sorry it's not right for our publishing house <laughs> yeah like something that that is a little bit less like in your face i took the time to make fun of you because i wanted to be a writer but now i work <laughs> at a publishing house <laughs> exactly uh yeah anyway so on tuesday february 1st we have the Contestants Scott Plummer, a software developer from Golden, Colorado, Zoha Khalili, a movement lawyer from Anaheim, California, and Jay Foster, an engineer from Rancho Palos Verdes, California, whose two-day cash winnings total $25,599. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, one woman, two words, two in quotation marks, three stars of the film, four-letter geography, five random things, and six flags mm-hmm. so you know we've got a theme going across the categories here yeah i liked that like that a lot um they managed to get six flags into five questions by having one of the clues be about semaphore <laughs> yep. where you use two flags to communicate yep that's right uh and that five random things was just trivia mm-hmm. that's all that could be called but um but it was it was interesting it was probably just a lot of uh clues that had been left on the board in previous games. Yep. Um, the $600 level I liked, it had a little bit of math in there. Uh, astronauts Scott Warden and Irwin established a University of Michigan alumni club on the moon during this, the fourth mission to land. Uh, and you had to do a little bit of math. Remember, Apollo 11 was the first, and Apollo 13 didn't land, so you had to kind of hope that the other ones did to get to Apollo 15, which, uh, which Scott did. Um, the one woman category I thought was kind of fun. 
um, in that they didn't tell you who the uh, woman was, but they did um, give five clues about, you know, things that had happened in her life. Um, uh, saving um, China. Uh, they don't say saving from what. Um, mm-hmm. uh, raising funds for the Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, uh, having a child who went to a debtor's prison. This type of prison abolished in 1833. It's a debtor's prison. Um, uh, anyway, at, at the end, Maya revealed that the woman in question was Dolly Madison, mm-hmm. um, which I had figured out. So I felt pretty smart. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one was the first pick in the round. Jay sniped it. Uh, he, of course, was at zero. So was everyone else. He wagered a thousand, which is the maximum. Uh, and it is at the $800 level of four-letter geography. He gets a clue. This world capital began hosting Holmenkollen ski competition in 1892. And he gets it correct with what is Oslo? That's a four-letter capital. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jay is at 7,600, Zoha is at 1,200, and Scott is at 3,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, little things in a big world. Conductors, read it or eat it, international get-togethers, more than one meaning, and killer TV shows. Um, My husband noticed and pointed out there were a number of times where Mayim asked Scott, I think it was, to uh, to repeat himself. Like she, like it seemed like she couldn't hear him that well, mm-hmm. and uh, and we wondered whether that flustered him or whether you know, like I I, I can imagine you know th- that that would uh, potentially sort of uh, throw you off your game a little bit, right? Because like you're up there and you're trying to get into a groove. Yeah. And then you have to, like, stop and repeat yourself, and that can... Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely think that that, that had a case. Um, I also noticed that Mayim... And I, I realize I'm used to Ken hosting at this point. Uh, Mayim had a, a tendency to, like, pause before responding, either correct or incorrect. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know, it threw me off as a viewer, and I think yeah. it may have caused some issue with the contestants as well. Yeah, agreed. Hopefully she'll sort of get uh, get back into the swing of things a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ken did a little uh, more strategy coaching <laughs> than, <laughs> that- we're, than we're used to seeing or this may- maybe than is appropriate. Right. Um, and, and Mayim does a little bit more like sharing tiny personal anecdotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a fungus among us, my father always used to say, like those kinds of things, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Alex did it too, but we were just, we were yeah. used to alex's right rhythm yeah i mean when you grow up with him yeah like that's just the way it is yep absolutely daily double number two is in the conductors category at the 1200 dollars level and scott finds it at the 13th pick he's at 9400 jay's at 10800 zoha's at 1200 he wagers 4000 um mayim actually asked him to repeat himself mm-hmm. here although i think that made sense. I think he said, I'll go 4,000 or something right. like that, where 
it could, it was not clear if he was saying, I'll go for a thousand or I will go, I will go 4,000. Yeah. So she asked him to repeat himself there. That was one of the times uh, just to clarify that. Uh, And he gets the clue on an 1887 cruise. New York Symphony Society conductor Walter Damrosch met this tycoon and talked him into building a hall. And Scott responds, who is Carnegie? Um, I think Mayim was not sure about that pronunciation, maybe, um, and paused. And he added Andrew Carnegie. And she said, yes, Andrew Carnegie. Mm-hmm. I hear the pronunciation Carnegie sometimes for some people from that family. And I don't know if it's mm. just an incorrect pronunciation or if there are yeah. like pronunciation variations among famous Carnegie's. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I've heard it both ways from people that are authorities, I guess. So, yeah, I, I kind of treat it as like it's both, and that's just the way it is. Like maybe, maybe there is one correct way, and the other way is actually incorrect. But I, as far as Jeopardy is concerned, like it doesn't matter if you mispronounce it a little bit, right? Like he got it right. Anyway, Daily Double number three is in the more than one meaning category at the $1,600 level, and Zoa finds it. She's in third at $5,200, Jay's at $14,000, Scott's at $16,200, and she makes it a true Daily Double. Ooh, we love it. It is the right move. Uh, She gets the clue, a windblown pile of snow, or the meaning of what you're saying, and she gets it correct with what is drift. Mm Mm-hmm. Then she gets the next $2,000 clue right below that. That takes her up to 12400 So then she's behind by 1600 from second place, 2800 from first place. And then she gets the 400 And then she gets the 800 And then Jay takes a swing and a miss at the $1,200. Um, uh, which was in killer TV shows, Good Cops, CCH, Pounder, and Forrest Whitaker hounded killer cop Michael Chiklis and the strike team on this FX series. He tried what is the badge, but it's the shield. And so that dropped him down mm-hmm. below Zoha, putting her in second place. And then Scott took a swing and a miss on the $1,600 level. I loved, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm giving the play-by-play, except I'm not sorry. Um, That's okay. So uh, that one was the murders in this British detective show take place in the fictional title county, not the dog days of August. He tried what is Somerset, but the correct response here is the Midsummer murders. That drops him down from 16,200 to 14,600. And then on the very last clue... The 2000 Zoha rings in and gets it correct. So that clue was better pay attention or this world we love so much might just kill you. Randy Newman sang in this show's opening theme. And you could sort of see her like probably know it and then like understand that taking the lead was like worth so much more than like potentially like Mm -hmm. like the advantage of going in in first place is worth that worth taking that shot. Right. Um, Yeah. So she gets that one correct. It's Monk. Uh, that flips the standings. Mm-hmm. Um, she goes from 13,600, 1,000 behind to 15,600, uh, a lead of 1,000. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, she stands at 15,600 to Scott's 14,600 and Jay's 12,800. 
And they get the final Jeopardy category, Historic Geography. And the clue, this city on the Rhone River that is partly a World Heritage Site was papal property until the French Revolution. So Jay has responded, what is Avignon? That is correct. He's wagered everything. He. Which is... Not good. Not the move. <laughs> no. Here. But he, he's correct, so it works. Right. Um, but, you know, from, from a third place position, especially a close third place like this, you're going to expect the first and second place contestants to make big wagers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from third place, it's it, the strategic thing to do is to wager pretty small. Right. But anyway, he doubles up to 25,600. Scott has what is Avignon as well. Um, and he's wagered 14,200. Holding back 400. That's, you know, it, it more than covers Jay's all in. It lands him at 28,800. And Zoha did not come up with the correct response here. She tried what is Orleans. I think Maya pronounced her Orleans. Uh, is, you know, I, I wonder if she was, uh, what she was thinking of specifically it's a, it's a it's a decent guess um but she's yeah, made a cover good. wager of 13,601 that drops her down into third place with 1,999 yeah um, it was heartbreaking cuz oh that was that 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 streak at the end there it was so great it was so great alas yeah that was a bummer but oh man that 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 run at the end it, it was it was legendary it was epic we i loved it yeah, it was so good to watch. But that means that Scott Plummer is our winner uh, going into Wednesday when we have the contestants Emma Salzberg, a consultant from Brooklyn, New York, Ben Sloat, an artist and art professor from Brookline, Massachusetts, and Scott Plummer, a software developer from Golden, Colorado, whose one-day cash winnings total $28,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories Australiana, In My Words, MLB team names defined, cars with a Z in quotation marks, well, it's Groundhog Day, and again. Yeah, the well, it's Groundhog Day category was all about things that happened on February 2nd. Groundhog Day is so weird. Yeah, Uh, like we have a lot of weird things in America. One of the weirdest. Yeah, it is definitely one of the weirdest. It's like... Hey, everybody. Let's stare at this rodent. (laughs) And then I guess decide how much longer winter's gonna be? Yeah. This whole board was terrible for me. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cars. Baseball. Yeah, I guess. That makes sense. Yeah. Those are are historically your strong suits, right? Mm Mm-mm. Yeah. Nope. All right. Daily Double number one is in the again category. One of the few that I liked here. Uh, It's at the $400 level. And Emma finds it at the 23rd pick. She has 1,000 to Scott's 5,000 and Ben's 1,800. And she makes it a true Daily Double and gets the clue. The first use of instant this was during the 1963 Army-Navy football game. And she gets that one correct. It is replay, instant replay. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Scott's at 5,800, Ben's at 1,000, Emma's made it up to 5,000, and we have the double Jeopardy categories, songs on my playlist, the leader in between, poetry, you're the dog, 
alliterative geography and add it up, A-D in quotation marks. Uh, those letters will begin each correct response. And uh, Ethiopia came up again in the alliterative geography category at the $800 level. It's a capital city on the Horn of Africa. And while it doesn't state Ethiopia, that's Addis Ababa, which is capital of Ethiopia. So if you're going to be on Jeopardy coming up, you should bone up on Ethiopia. Yes. Uh, there was, I thought, kind of a funny miss uh, with a rebound at the $2,000 level of added up. Uh, the clue there was, the New Testament says, be sober, be vigilant because of your this, the devil. Scott tried what is advocate. <laughs> Devil's advocate is totally a phrase. Right. Advocate does start with AD, but that is sort of funny with the rest of the clue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I can see, I can see how he saw devil and starts with ad and was like devil's advocate sure that's incorrect it's adversary right and uh emma got the rebound on that one j alfred prufrock and his love song it's coming up a lot just keeps coming up it was at the 400 hundred dollar level of poetry just need to memorize the whole poem or be able to recognize you know maybe the 10 most common most uh most quoted phrases from it Oh, 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 oh. Oh? I think Maya made a real mistake at the $400 level of the leader in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that clue was, he was U.S. president between Grover Cleveland and Grover Cleveland. <laughs> Scott rang in and said, who is Harrison? And what Maya said was, yes, Benjamin Harrison. And mm. what she should have said is, be more specific. Right. Because there are two presidents, Harrison. <laughs> That's right. An actual instance where there are two with the same name. <laughs> As opposed to asking you to be more specific about President Kennedy. The, yeah, the only the one. The one that existed. Right. Ugh. And was the president. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I've like just talked with my students about this like yesterday. I may have mentioned that I teach a knowledgeable class. Uh, and so part of that class is we do what I call list work because like it's good to just memorize lists for trivia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're working on the U.S. presidents and we just got to Benjamin Harrison. And I was like, so look at that. There are two Harrisons. Uh, so if I ask you one of the presidents named Harrison, you need to give me the first name. Mm -hmm. Like my 10th graders know that. Yep. Bah. Anyway. Daily Double number two is in the poetry category at the $1,200 level. It is pick number nine, and Ben finds it. Uh, he is at $1,400, behind Scott's $9,800, and Emma's $7,400. Uh, and he wagers everything, which he should. He gets the clue, This pair of adjectives describes how the narrator of The Raven pondered, quote, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. Uh, this was like the one poetry question that I liked. Um, and he did not know and admitted as such, uh, but that is weak and weary to rhyme with midnight dreary. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure anyone would have learned that response from your Edgar Allan Poe deep dive, but it was a great deep dive. Mm, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's one that we go back to a number of times. It was a lot of fun and pretty good. Yeah. Daily Double number three is in the alliterative geography category at the $1,600 level, and Ben finds this one as the 14th pick. Uh, he's at 800 only, uh, with Scott at 12200 and Emma at 7400 He wagers $2,000, uh, the maximum allowable 
Love that move. And gets the clue. This city was once the capital of the United Provinces of Central America. And he gets it correct. It's San Salvador. Yeah. It's a alliterative Central American capital. Mm-hmm. Yep. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Scott is at 17,000. Ben is at 6,800. And Emma is at 12,200. And we get the final Jeopardy category, Recent TV. And the clue, the credits on The Queen's Gambit included this man as special consultant. Uh, ben got it correct with who is Kasparov, Gary Kasparov, and uh, wagered nothing, so he sticks at 6,800, um, which I think he should have bet something, because Scott's cover bet isn't going to get him that low. Yeah, I think so. Uh, either way, he got it correct. Uh, Emma... Also got it correct with who is Kasparov. She actually crossed off Kasparov and then wrote Kasparov again. Uh, and she wagered 10,000. Uh, she gets her up to 22-2. And Scott took the neg bait and wrote who is Bobby Fischer, which I believe Bobby Fischer died. Is that right? A little while ago? Uh, maybe. I, I seem to recall that he died before this. He died in 2008. Okay, yeah. Uh, so yeah, he wouldn't have been able to like be a consultant on this much more recent show. Yeah. You know, I went back and forth between thinking about whether I would put Kasparov or whether I would put Magnus Carlsen, mm. um, who is the current world champion. And I think like made some like comment. I remembered like I remembered hearing something about Magnus Carlsen and the Queen's Gambit. And I think it was that he like, you know, was asked for some comments and, you know, like made some like, you know, like did a little analysis of some of the games there or said, you know, speculated about whether he would whether the protagonist of the Queen's Gambit would beat him at chess, hmm. uh, you know, something like that. Hmm. But that was that was uh, occurring to me as I thought about this one. Hmm. And then th the thing in Kasparov's favor i think is that he he just does a lot yeah he does a lot of like public stuff right just writ yeah he's like out there okay personal anecdote i traveled in greece and turkey right after i graduated from college for a couple of weeks and in istanbul i walked into this random restaurant for dinner and sat down and the back of the menu had a bunch of celebrity endorsements, including one from Gary Kasparov. <laughs> nice. Right. Like he's just out there, like just doing stuff, just like hustling, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, blur for your menu. Sure. Like appear on your thing. Okay. <laughs> um, so what a guy. Yeah. So I, I was I, like, on the one hand, Magnus Carlson is like kind of the, you know, the current like chess, guy and on the other hand kasparov is like it just seems like the sort of thing he would do so yeah yeah it makes sense but that means emma wins and on thursday we have the contestants zach goslin a data analyst from washington dc heather bryce a retired flight attendant from brooksville florida and emma salzberg a consultant from brooklyn new york whose one day cash winnings total twenty two thousand two hundred. and we have the jeopardy round categories the 20th century it's a national thing. Each correct response contains or is a national adjective. Dating the reality show. It was all purple for naught and mashed up book titles. Uh, name the two books by the same author that have been combined in the clue. 
it was hilarious to see how embarrassed they were to do pretty well on that dating the reality show category. <laughs> yeah, but knowledge um, is knowledge. Knowledge is knowledge. Facts are facts. Um, There's no wrong way to know something. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, Emily, you got Chumbawamba. Chumbawamba was a great clue, and I am proud to know it. <laughs> As well you should be. <laughs> I guess I, I don't want to touch Irish politics, but like, l- 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 maybe I'll just note in the thousand dollar level of the 20th century uh we had a we had a triple stumper um with two misses the clue was in 1948 john costello became irish prime minister the first from this party whose name means gaelic family heather tried what is Sinn fine emma tried what is Sinn fein and the correct response which nobody got is fina gale i just saw the clue it was like like irish politics like ah like i don't know as much about it as i should but also i'm aware that like yeah it's tricky there are potentially like offensive Mm -hmm. responses right here yeah anyway uh daily double number one is in the national thing category at the 400 dollars level it's pick number 12 and emma finds it Uh, she's at 1000 heather is at negative 1000 and zach is at 1200 and she bets it all and gets the clue, the February 1588 death of its admiral, the Marquis de Santa Cruz, would loom large in the coming disaster that befell this big group. And she gets it correct with what is the Spanish Armada. Uh, she must have listened to my deep dive about the Spanish Armada. That's the only way she could have known. <laughs> That's right. Uh, 1588 should have should point you there, as well as the inclusion of a Spanish name, so two kind of routes to that answer mm-hmm. uh, so at the end of the jeopardy round emma is up to six thousand heather is at negative 400 and zach is at 5200 and we get the double jeopardy categories the exile files idioms and expressions laughter in the bible rocks and minerals the music man man in quotation marks and tributaries the music man had nothing to do with <laughs> Kyle's favorite musical. <laughs> uh, it, mm, go away. It's had its time. Yeah. No. But it was fun to see in that category at the $800 level. Heather, who is retired, uh, got the clue. Uh, this Wu-Tang Clan man is also half of a duo with Red Man. And that's Method Man. That was fun to see. Mm-hmm. I also, I liked seeing... I imagine this is just sort of like it's how things, you know, how how categories and games got pulled. Um, the Exile Files at the eight hundred dollar level. The clue was renouncing his American citizenship years earlier. This chess master died in exile in Iceland in two thousand eight, and Heather got that one. It's Bobby Fisher. Mm-hmm. Maybe she would have had his name right on the tip of her tongue. Yeah. Anyway, um, but I sort of wondered whether having him come up as an incorrect guess right before she went on sort of helped her access that. Oh, yeah, probably. I'm sure she was much more primed for that, having seen it. Because, you know, you're in the audience. Mm -hmm. If uh, you're a waiting contestant, you're just sitting there. Yeah. The tributaries category, I guess you could get it just by being really good at rivers. But it felt to me almost like a linguistic slash geography question. Because if you don't actually know the tributaries, 
you can say to yourself, oh, those sound sort of like French. Right. You know, they sound like this language. They sound like that language. Maybe I can like connect what language the tributaries sound like to the river I know as the major river where that language is spoken. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So um, at the $2,000 level, the Allier and the Nièvre are joined with this river famous for its valley. Uh, Zach tried what is the Indus. Emma went for the Loire, which is correct. I hadn't heard of either of those rivers, but I was like, well, that sounds like French. And I know the Loire Valley is a thing. So, you know, that would be my guess. Yeah, that, that was my thought, too. Daily Devil number two is in the idioms and expressions category at the $1,200 level, and Emma finds it at the third pick. Uh, she's at 6800 to Zach's 5600 Heather is 400 in the red. Emma wagers 3000 and gets the clue. Tangled wires led to the 19th century phrase, this type of telegraph. Eventually, this became the way you hear a rumor, and she got that one correct. It's the grapevine. Yeah, I never heard that phrase before. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know where that phrase came from. It was really interesting. Uh, and Daily Double number three is in the rocks and minerals category. At the $2,000 level, it's pick number 20. Uh, Heather finds it. She's gotten up to 4400 Emma's at 12200 and Zach is at 13200 And she wagers 2500 I think you probably should have gone for it all, but whatever. Uh, she gets a clue meaning stone ball. This rocky 60-mile outer layer of the earth consists of the crust and the upper part of the mantle. And she obviously does not know it. Yeah. Uh, it's very entertaining to watch. And she guesses what? Is the potato, uh, which is correct. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it is incorrect. Uh, it is the uh, lithosphere. Litho meaning stone, and of course, sphere meaning ball. Yes. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Emma is in the lead with 20,200. Zach is in second place with 12,800. Heather's at 4,300. And we have the final jeopardy category, famous Americans. And the clue, he was buried in 1969 in one of the World War II uniform jackets named for him. Heather's guest who is Flack. Mm-hmm. I I totally get this guess. Yeah, uh right? Me a too. Flack jacket. Right. Is is a thing. Mm-hmm. And if you're like a jacket named for somebody, like I can't think yeah. of a person. So like let me think of a jacket and hopefully <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. I don't know, maybe Flack's a name. I don't know. Yeah. Uh so Heather's wagered four thousand that drops her down to uh to 300 zach tried who is Lindbergh. that one's not correct either he's wagered 7401 he's trying to get above a zero wager from emma that that makes sense i guess yeah uh the j archive wagering calculator suggests 7401 as one possible bet an alternative is to wager small to protect your second place position. Yeah. So that drops him down to 53.99. Emma also tried who is flack. She's wagered 5401. It's a it's a cover bet and it drops her down to 14,799, uh, but that's enough. So she is the winner going into Friday. That's right. And the, the correct response was Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower jacket apparently. It was designed by him, like a short jacket. Um, I've never heard of that. And apparently none of the contestants had either. So 
Emma wins her second game. And on Friday, we have the contestants Molly Mastantuono, a director of university communications from Natick, Massachusetts, Sara Lafore, a third grade teacher from San Jose, California, and Emma Salzberg, a consultant from Brooklyn, New York, whose two-day cash winnings total $36,999. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, dance party, mammals, all the bells and whistles, not an answer. These are words that start with a vowel, but don't take the article an, which was a weird concept to me. Uh, our town, R in quotation marks, and the stage manager. Yeah, I uh, also got a little thrown by not an answer. Yeah, they start with a vowel, but you don't put an, which makes more sense when you like see the the responses. So like the $200 clue, a distinctive outfit worn by members of a profession that is a uniform. Mm-hmm. Not an. Almost all of these actually were um, words are spelled starting with a vowel, but it sounds like it starts with a Y, right? Uniform, eulogy, U, ukulele, and then the one exception was the Ouija or Ouija board. Do people Mm -hmm. say Ouija board or is that just something that I... I mean, that's how it's it's spelled. spelled. I, I, I have the same feeling. Like, I always hear it pronounced as Ouija, but I'm like... Isn't it, is it supposed to be that? Yeah. Or is that just what people say? I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's no way to know. No. I mean, we could ask the spirits. Maybe <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Jimmy is the stage manager of Jeopardy. Has he always? No, he hasn't always been the stage he manager. He has not always been. When we were there, wasn't it John? It was John. Yeah. Yeah. When did John, I hope, retire? I, I mean, I know there was a. A bit of issue with uh, some ageism allegations uh, a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, thereabouts. Mm -hmm. I hope that did not play any particular role. Yeah. I seem to remember former Jeopardy contestants looking askance at John's retirement, given that there was sort of a whole slew of very senior people who left the show Mm-hmm. All right around the same time. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think I caught John's retirement, which is a shame because he was awesome. Yeah, he was awesome. He stuck with me through my six takes <laughs> of introduction. <laughs> uh, yeah, that guy. Mm-hmm. That guy was pretty cool. He uh, he retired in May. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, good. I hope that he is enjoying his retirement. Yeah, I hope so too. Daily Double number one is in the R-Town category at the $800 level, and Emma finds it as the 19th pick. Um, she has 2600 at this point. Sarah's at 3000 Molly's in the red at negative 600 And Emma wagers 1400 She's looking to take the lead here. She gets the clue. On the 18th of April, 1871, the former North Chelsea, Massachusetts, celebrated this new name with a reading of a Longfellow poem. And it takes her a second to work it out, but she gets it. That's Revere, as in the midnight ride of Paul Revere. If I recall correctly, there's a a Kelly's roast beef in Revere. I that's it's it's a decent accent, and I don't know Revere that well, um, but sure. Maybe maybe a Boston listener can let us know. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, 
Emma's in the lead with 5,200. Sarah's at 3,800. Molly's at 200. And we have the Double Jeopardy categories, Title Word Puzzles, Historic Offspring, When Good Actors Break Bad, On the Beach, Books and Authors, and Ukraine Drops. Yeah, that Ukraine category was suspiciously timely. Yeah. Obviously, we know episodes are taped months in advance. And uh, the recent issues with Ukraine and Russia and the United States and and NATO and all that is is much more recent than when this episode was taped. But yeah, it seemed perhaps a bit touchy right now, uh, particularly the twelve hundred dollar level. About two hundred million people live on this ten thousand square mile peninsula, historically part of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's Crimea. Which we all should know at this point. Yep. Yeah, we sure should. We are keeping a, a careful eye on the Ukraine situation here, um, because there's a there's a big um Ukrainian community in oh. my vicinity and some uh some Ukrainian folks who are uh close to my church's heart, including some folks who have moved back to Ukraine. So mm. yeah. The historic offspring category. It amused me because there had just been a triple stumper two days prior about the band the offspring um and so when i saw historic offspring like now now it wasn't that long ago (laughs) it was only Um, a couple of days jeopardy (laughs) yeah uh speaking of things that also came up this week or was it last week i don't remember the books and authors category at the 1600 dollar level the wolf gift book one in her wolf gift chronicles deals with the making of a werewolf not a vampire uh sorry guest who is Meyer, it's in like Stephanie Meyer, uh, but that's incorrect. And Molly got in with Anne Rice. I think it was last mm-hmm. week. We had like the opposite, right? The opposite, yeah. Um, and like Stephanie Meyer is a is a great guess here because Twilight has that like vampire werewolf dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is a good guess, and it just it kind of tickled me that we had the opposites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I saw. I, I had the same thought. Yeah, Daily Double Number Two is in the books and authors category. It's down at the uh, two thousand dollar level. It's actually right after that one. It's pick number five. Molly finds it. She is at three thousand. Emma's at sixty four hundred, and Sarah is at twenty two hundred, and she wagers two thousand and gets the clue. Bill O'Reilly subtitled this twenty twelve alliterative bestseller, "The End of Camelot," and she. It's got nothing, sorry, uh, but that is Killing Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in that historic offspring category that we mentioned a minute ago at the $800 level. Emma finds this one. She has 15600 to Sarah's 600 and Molly's 1800 She wagers 5000 and gets the clue. His only legitimate heir, a son with Empress Marie Louise died in 1832 of tuberculosis, and she gets that one correct. It's Napoleon. Uh, which Napoleon? Be more specific. <laughs> so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Emma has gotten herself in a lock position. Double jeopardy was just her round at 24,600. Sarah is at 4,200, and Molly is at 5,400. We get the final jeopardy category behind the Disney attraction. And the clue, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror utilizes technology developed by this company, founded in 1853. Sara got it correct with what is Otis. 
the elevator company. Mm-hmm. Very clever. Uh, and she wagered 3000 Molly wrote, what is General Electric? Which is not a bad guess, uh, but that is incorrect. Wagered 3001 And Emma also got it incorrect with, what is Kodak? Which I thought was interesting because, you know, they take the photo of you on the ride. Mm-hmm. That may have been where she was coming from, which, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, but that's yeah. incorrect. That's not who they were looking for. Uh, and she wagered 7400 to end at 17200 We'll see her next week. She's starting to put on a bit of a, bit of a role here. Yeah. Uh, so that's the end of the week. And this is the point in our show where we remind you that we have a Patreon. There might be more stuff on there in the near and or distant future. <laughs> uh, you can check it out. We... Like to put up the quiz questions every week before editing is done, uh, right after we finish recording, so that uh, patrons get a sneak peek of those and they can they can start thinking about them beforehand. Maybe if they want a little more time, and we have some other exclusive content as well. Uh, if you're interested in that or not interested in exclusive content, either way, uh, you can financially support us there with you know just even a few bucks a month. Uh, anything helps with the cost of just maintaining the podcast. Uh, and if that's not something that you're interested in or not able to do, we still encourage you to find more important things than our podcast. And uh, we point you toward blacklivesmatter.com, communityjusticeexchange.org, and the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe page. Yeah. Emily. Yes, Kyle. What do you think we are talking about this week um are we talking about fred astaire we are not talking about fred astaire are we doing anything with like flag terminology like vexillology like that that missed question about the union yes yeah yes we are (laughs) that's exactly it that's exactly what we're talking about uh i had a i had a fine streak of Two weeks <laughs> where you you didn't get it. We're talking about vexillology, kind of some flag terminology, and uh, yeah. Nice. So vexillology, as we've kind of already talked about, is the study of the history, symbolism, and usage of flags, or really any interest in flags in general. The word is a synthesis of the Latin word vexillum and the Greek suffix logia, you know, study. Or logia, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the first known usage of the word vexillology was in 1959. So not that old, really. Yeah. yeah. A person who studies flags is a vexillologist. One who designs flags is a vexillographer. And the art of flag designing is called vexillography. One who is a hobbyist or just general admirer of flags is just a vexillophile. Uh, so the study of flags, or vexillology, was formalized by the U.S. scholar and student of flags Whitney Smith in 1961 with the publication of The Flag Bulletin. During his lifetime, Smith organized various flag organizations and meetings, including the first International Congress of Vexillology, or ICV, as well as the North American Vexillological Association, Vex- Vexillological Association, oh. And the International Federation of Vexillological Associations. Uh, Smith is acknowledged as conceiving the term vexillology 
And he wrote, while the use of flags goes back to the earliest days of human civilization, the study of that usage in a serious fashion is so recent that the term for it did not appear in print until 1959. Before this time, study of flags was considered a part of heraldry, which of course is uh, the discipline relating to the designs, display, and study of armorial bearings. There are different ways to be involved in vexillology. There's the academic work in fields such as sociology, history, or design. You can be part of the flag industry, or you can just be passionate about it. And of course, with the emergence of the internet, the study and interest in vexillology has expanded significantly. So um, the International Federation of Vexillological, Vexillological Associations, God, every time, um, it is an international body of vexillology. Uh, the FIAV has more regional associates and other centers of flags, such as the North American Vexillological Association, like I already mentioned, NAVA, the Deutsche Gesellschaft für Flagenkunde, <laughs> uh, which is the German Society for Flag Studies, the Flag Heritage Foundation, the Flag Research Center, Flags of the World, and 46 other affiliated associations and institutes with the International Federation of Vexillological Associations. So I mentioned a couple of things in that kind of overall recap. One is Whitney Smith, Whitney Smith Jr., actually. Uh, he was born in February 26th, 1940, and died November 17th, 2016. Like I said, he originated the term vexillology, and uh, he was the founder of several organizations, including the International Federation of Vexillological Associations. He has a whole bunch of what are they called? Postnomials or, or uh, abbreviations at the ends of his name that all come from these vexillological associations. So I'll talk about those in a little bit. But he, as a youth, lived in Lexington and Winchester, Massachusetts. Uh, and he went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. And during his time at Harvard, he designed the flag of Guiana. Guyana. Guyana? Guiana. Oh. Guyana. I don't know. That country he designed the flag of. And he had articles published in Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, he co-founded the Flag Bulletin, the world's first journal about flags. Uh, and he established the Flag Research Center at his home and was its director. In 1991, he was named a Laureate of the Federation by the FIAV. And he was given the honor of Fellow of the Federation in 2001. Uh, in 2006, he was the joint author of the American flag, two centuries of concord and conflict. And in 2016, he died from complications of Alzheimer's at the age of 76. He wrote 27 books on the subjects of flags. Wow. That's, that's so many books about flags. Uh, yeah. And he also, like I said, he designed the national flag of Guyana, uh, 21 Saudi Arabian Navy flags, as well as the, uh, he was on the committee that helped develop the flag of Bonaire uh, and assisted in the design of the flag of Aruba. So he was quite an important figure in mm-hmm. flags. That's Whitney Smith. I also mentioned a vexillum, which is where this term comes from. The vexillum was a flag-like object used as a military standard by the by units in the ancient Roman army. So it's kind of like, you can picture kind of the like, sort of like spear with a crossbar, and then there's a banner hanging from it. That's a vexillum. Yeah. That, that's a vexillum. Uh, and they were used throughout the, the Roman uh, Empire. The International Congresses of Vexillology, going back to 1965, the first one was in Meuterberg, Netherlands. 
and the most recent one was in San Antonio back in July of 2019. Uh, They notably have not had one since the outbreak of COVID, which good on them. Mm -hmm. The flag of the FIAV was designed by Klaes Sierksma, and it depicts two yellow halyards forming two interlaced loops on a blue field. That is as accurate as I can describe it. (laughs) Um, And the FIAV has uh, different uh, honors and medals that they award. Two medals that come with post-nominals, which are, again, the letters that go after your name, are laureates of the Federation, who get the LF, and fellows of the Federation, who get the FF. So Whitney Smith had both of those after his name, uh, as well as PhD and a couple of other things. So let's talk a little bit about terminology within vexillology. There are a bunch of different flag types. So there's like the banderole or banneral. Uh, that's a small flag or streamer that was usually carried on the end of a lance by a knight or a narrow flag flown from the masthead of a ship. So you can probably picture that kind of narrow sort of streamer looking thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a banner, which is kind of a general term for anything. And in heraldry specifically, it's a square rectangular flag bearing a coat of arms. There is a burgee, B-U-R-G-E-E, which is a distinguishing flag of a recreational boating organization. Commonly has the shape of a pennant. There is a civil ensign or merchant flag or merchant ensign, which is a version of a national flag that is flown on civil ships to denote their nationality. Also a civil flag, which is a version of a national flag that is flown on civil installations or craft, not military. Color or color is the flag of a military unit. A corner flag, which is specifically a small flag flown at each corner of a football pitch or other sports field, which I love that that is included as like a specific thing. There's an ensign, which is a flag of any ship or military unit, or generically a synonym for any kind of flag. Uh, On ships, it's flown at the stern. There's a fanion, or fanion, a small flag that the French military uses. The gonfalon, gonfalon, or gonfalon, which is a heraldic flag that is suspended and pendant from a crossbar. So it's similar to kind of what we we think of like a vexillum. The guidon which is a small flag that military units fly in Scottish heraldry, a smaller version. It is a smaller version of the standard. There's the jack, which is a flag flown from a short jack staff at the bow of a ship. So the Union Jack, which is often the name given to like the flag of the United Kingdom, is not really a jack unless it's actually the flag flown from the jack staff. Uh, this is blowing my blowing my mind. Yeah, jack is a specific type of flag. Um, really, it's just the flag of the United Kingdom. A pennant or pennant, which is a flag that is wider at the hoist than at the fly. So the hoist is the part where that attaches to, like, to the rope or pole, and the fly is the other end. Mm-hmm. Uh, a pipe banner, a decorative flag for Scottish high- Highland bagpipes. A prayer flag, which is the kind of flag flown along mountain ridges and peaks in the mm-hmm. Himalayas in order to bless the surrounding land. If you Think of like the pictures of the summit of Everest. There are a lot mm-hmm. of prayer flags flying around there. A rank flag or distinguishing flag, which is a flag that a superior naval officer flies on his flagship. A signal flag, which is a flag or pennant that communicates or signals information that is not heraldic. Kind of like semaphore kind of uh, things for, for, I guess not semaphore, but like, you know, flag communication between ships where they run up a series of flags. That's a signal flag. Mm-hmm. A standard which in heraldry is a long tapered flag that bears heraldic badges and the motto of the armager, 
which an armager is a person entitled to use a heraldic achievement. Uh, not going to get into that. It may also refer to a military color that cavalry units fly or a royal standard of a monarch or member of a royal family. Uh, a state flag or governmental flag is a version of a national flag that represents and may be restricted in use to only the national government or agencies thereof. Uh, a vexiloid, which is not really a flag. It's a flag-like object that is used in a similar symbol, uh, symbolic manner as a flag, but it differs from the conventional flag in some way. So it's not, it's not actually like just a like flat piece of cloth, usually. A vexillum, I already talked about. And then there's a war flag or military flag or battle flag, which is a variant of the national flag that the military forces use on land. Uh, so those are a bunch of different kinds of flags. Here are the elements. So like the, the Jeopardy question was asking about the union. And union isn't really typical, like uh, one of the more typical terms. It's like there's another term that is more commonly used for that region or that area of a flag. Anyway, going alphabetically, the badge is if the flag has a coat of arms or a simple heraldic symbol, that's what it is. Uh, a canton is any quarter of a flag, but commonly means the upper hoist quarter, such as the field of stars in the flag of the United States or the Union Jack of the Australian flag. Uh, so what the Jeopardy ref clue referred to as the Union is technically a canton, although when talking about the flag of the United States, that region is sometimes referred to as the Union. So it that particular canton can be called a Union. Okay. Uh, the charge is a figure or symbol appearing in the field of a flag. An emblem is a device often used as a, as a charge. It may be heraldic or just more modern. Uh, for example, the, the maple leaf is, a, is an emblem on the Canadian flag. Uh, the field is simply the background of the flag and the color behind the charges. The fimbriation is a narrow edging or border, often in white or gold, on a flag to separate two other colors. Uh, for example, the white and gold lines of the South African flag that separate the black and the green and the blue and the red. Uh, a finial is a decorative or protective cap atop the flagpole. Often it's shaped like a sphere, but it can also be shaped like something else, uh, like an eagle. Sometimes it's referred to as a capper. The fly is the half or edge of the flag farthest away from the flagpole. Uh, this term also refers to the horizontal length of a flag. The heading is a piece of loose fabric running along the hoist for attaching to a flag to its rope. The hoist is the half or edge of the flag nearest the flagpole. It also refers to the vertical dimension of a flag. Uh, the length is the span of a flag along the side at right angles to the flagpole, and the width or breadth is the span of the flag down the parallel side to the flagpole. So those are also synonymous to flag and, and hoist. And then there are a number of different like names for patterns. So I'm going to go fast through these. Uh, there's a border, right? Which means if it's a flag that has mm -hmm. a border, right? It's a border. It goes around the edge. The canton I already talked about, which is like one quadrant. There's quadrisection, where you have like each quadrant, like unique, like the flag of Panama has uh, a blue quadrant, a red quadrant, and then two white quadrants with either a blue star or a red star. There's a Greek cross, which is the uh, equilateral cross in the center, like this flag of Switzerland. There's a symmetric cross, which um, goes all the way through the flag, uh, so it's shorter vertically than it is horizontally, uh, like the flag of Georgia. Um, it has a symmetric cross in the middle. There's a Nordic cross, like, you know, Iceland, Norway, where uh, it is off-center toward the hoist. There's a pale pattern, which is where you have two bars of the same color on either side and one bar of a different color in the middle, like, like Canada's flag. Uh, two red bars on the sides and one mm -hmm. white in the middle. 
Fess is where you take those and turn them horizontally, so the top and bottom stripe are one color and the middle is different, like the flag of Austria. There's Bend, which has a diagonal uh, bar going through, going through from the bottom left corner to the top right corner, so like the flag of Tanzania, if you can picture that. Mm -hmm. Chevron has the like triangle shape on the hoist side, like the flag of the Philippines, or I think Cuba. There's the Paul which is like the flag of South Africa, which has kind of that Y shape. Mm-hmm. And then the saltire or saltier, like the flag of Scotland, where it has an X going through uh, the center. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole bunch of terminology for vexillology thrown at you. I know that is a lot and probably not going to remember a whole bunch, but hopefully some of those terms connect to something else. Yeah, this was great. I'm going to go back and like listen to it. Like I listened to it the first time while you were saying it, but like I sort of want to go back and like listen to it again to see if I can uh, internalize a little bit more of it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too, for sure. Uh, so there we go. That is vexillology. Are you ready for a quiz? I hope I am. Yeah. Yeah. Let's have a quiz. Yeah, I think you are. Yeah. These are, they're not really flag questions per se. You'll see. Okay. It's kind of general knowledge. So, here we go. Question one. In most college and competitive marching bands, as well as drum corps, there is a section called the Color Guard. While its origin is likely linked to a military color guard, they no longer carry flags with any particular symbolism or importance. For five points each, what other two objects do marching band color guards typically twirl and toss in addition to flags? All right. Um, twirl and toss in addition to flags. I assume batons, and I don't know what else. Um, in the clue, I, I, I mentioned its link to a military color guard. Oh. You know, this popped into my head, and then I was like, no. They wouldn't have them, like working with <laughs> weapons but like but the thing that came to mind was like um like like rifles or like fi- like firearm kind of things uh, presumably props right like i don't know all right so that that's what i've got that's that's my awkward guess okay so you're going with batons and rifles yeah okay uh rifle is correct okay rifle is correct they're not Baton real rifles was not correct uh baton i baton twirlers are typically like kind of a like a parade a parade thing yeah um but for like competitive field bands you have rifle and saber oh okay i guess that sort of does ring a bell now yeah if you want to see some some pretty cool stuff you can go on youtube and find like you can just google like you know really impressive rifle or saber toss kind of stuff it's pretty cool all right so you're at 15 points because of your initial guess yep uh question two The Nordic cross is a cross shape in a rectangular field with the center shifted toward the hoist as seen on the flags of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Iceland. A double Nordic cross in red on a black field is the flag of Norsefire, a fictional neo-fascist party ruling over the UK in what comic series by Alan Moore and David Lloyd? As far as I know, Sue Grafton had nothing to do with this work. Okay. Sue Grafton is like the A for Alibi person. And I'm pretty sure Alan Moore is behind V for Vendetta. So I'm going to go with that. That is correct. 
It is V for Vendetta. And looking through a variety of flag stuff, I came across that flag and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I've never read V for Vendetta. Maybe I should. Oh, neither have I. (laughs) I just came across that thing and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I like the movie. I haven't seen the movie either. Oh. This week in comic book news, Saga, which was on hiatus for several years, is back and I went inside a comic book store for, I think, the first time in my life. Wow, nice. Yeah, but I'm I'm pretty thrilled about the return of Saga, but nobody is to talk to me about it until I finish rereading all the previous previous issues um, to remind myself of uh, who everyone is. I assure you I could not spoil it. <laughs> Great. So, there you go. Um, that's that good, but also, oh my gosh, you should read Saga. Oh, it's so good. I will look into it. All right, uh, you are at 25 points. Question three. In the Whitney Museum of Art, which is not named for Whitney Smith, I found out, you can find the painting Three Flags, which depicts three superimposed American flags, each varied from the one beneath it by a reduction in size of 25%. By shifting the visual emphasis from the flag's emblematic meaning to the geometric patterns and variegated texture of the picture surface, and the canvas structure, the artist explores the boundary between abstraction and representation. As he remarked, this painting allowed him to, quote, go beyond the limits of the flag and to have different canvas space. Who is the alliterative American postmodern artist that painted three flags? All right. Was he a triple stumper this week? Also, Jasper Johns is like the person who's coming to mind for like American flag, like modern art. Go with I'll go with Jasper Johns. That is Jasper Johns. Yeah, I think he was a triple stumper. And I don't remember if it was this week or last week. But recently, yes, there was a Jasper Johns triple stumper. And I, I don't remember if they asked for if they asked about three flags or not. But that is ringing a bell. But yeah, it is Jasper Johns. Nice. Uh, okay, you are at. 35 points? 35 yeah, points. Yeah, 35 points. Question four. I got to make sure to hit these in any quiz about flags. So there is only one national flag in the world that is not quadrilateral, and only two that are squares. For three points each, name those nations, and one more point if you can name the only U.S. state to not use a quadrilateral flag. All right. Wait, one is not quadrilateral. How many are squares? Two are squares. The rest are, are like non-square rectangles. Ugh, I don't think I know the square ones. I'm pretty sure Nepal is not quadrilateral. Nepal is not quadrilateral. It is like two pennants. Yeah. I swear that I saw recently which two are squares. Yeah, it comes up a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Georgia is coming to mind, but I think only because you said, because you mentioned it for other reasons in the deep dive. Uh, Switzerland, I feel better about. I don't think I have a another guess besides Georgia. So I'll go with Switzerland and Georgia as squares. Um, okay. And what U.S. state? And what U.S. state? Oh, my gosh. Um... Not a rectangle. Mm -hmm. Don't think I maybe have ever seen this fact, but let me think for a second and see if I can come up with a fun guess. 
I keep thinking about the state flags that I do know, all of which are rectangles. Right? Like I picture one, I'm like, yep, that's a rectangle. <laughs> I, I mean, toss that one off the list. I mean, you have um, uh, a 98% chance of hitting a rectangle. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go with Colorado. <laughs> now, it'd be pretty wild if we didn't have a rectangle for our rectangular state. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, going back to the the flags of the countries, like you said, Nepal uh, is not rectangular at all. Switzerland is correct; it is a square, and Yay. so is Vatican City. Oh, Vatican City uses a square. Every other national flag in the world is a, like, rectangular quadrilateral, mm-hmm. specifically not square. And the U.S. state is Ohio. Huh. It has a, uh, it's pennant-like. Oh, what is that called? It, it has, like, two points on the fly, and it, and oh, it is, yeah. like, wedged toward that. Uh-huh. It's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting flag. Uh, there we go. You got six points from that. You got six points. Okay. And you are at 41 points going to question All five. Right. Question five. Winning the pennant in Major League Baseball means becoming champion of either the National League or the American League, which are the two large divisions of the MLB. Each season, the pennant winners face off in the World Series for five points each. Name the two teams, one American League and one National League, that have won the most pennants. This fact frustrates me for multiple reasons. And if you need a hint, I can give you those reasons. Oh, I i mean, I'm still not going to get it with the hint, but yeah, give me the hint. Okay, well, uh, one of those reasons is my pet peeve about all trivia being New York-centric. And okay. the other is that one of these teams has made it basically impossible for my Rockies to ever win their division. Oh. Also, the Rockies are really bad, so that's the other reason they'll never win. Yeah, um... I don't say, yeah, like, yeah, your baseball team is bad. I, I have no but idea. they are. Um, okay. Oh, man, I'm trying to even, like, I'm so bad. I'm so bad at sports. All right, New York Yankees are one. I'm going to I'm gonna assume uh, that, one, that one came to mind immediately. I'm going to go with New York Yankees for one of them. This is like one of those moments where I'm like, I've memorized like the lists of baseball teams, but I'm still afraid that I'm going to like accidentally name a hockey team, you know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, the, I don't even like, I don't know which ones are National League and which ones are American League. The Cardinals. So uh, the New York Yankees is correct for the okay. American League. The Yankees have won 40 American League pennants in their storied history, winning their first in 1921 and their most recent in 2009. So it has been a while since the Yankees have won the pennant. And this is more than twice that of the next closest team, uh, who are the Oakland Athletics, um, who actually, little trivia fact, uh, began Philadelphia as the Philadelphia Athletics. So that's the American League, dominated, absolutely dominated by the Yankees, which mm-hmm. is you know, pretty understandable. Uh, the National League, you guess the Cardinals, they are a National League team, so... Good on you. And they are uh, fairly winning. In fact, they are second place. I was trying to think of a team that had gone to the World Series, like, against a number the of Yankees. On yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, um, yeah, that's not a bad guess. So the Cardinals are in second place with 19 pennants. Uh, but the 
the team of the National League that has the most are the Los Angeles Dodgers, previously the Brooklyn Dodgers, ah! with 24 pennants. Oh, sorry, I said the Cardinals were in second place. They're in third. The San Francisco Giants, formerly the New York Giants, uh, are right behind the Dodgers <laughs> at so 23 New pennants. Yes. Uh, so the Giants have 23 pennants and the, the Dodgers have 24. Both of which, the Giants and the Dodgers, are in the National League West, which also the Rockies are. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, so you got five points. You are up to 46. Going into the final... And the final category I'm calling Not Because It Is Easy. Hmm. All right. Trying to figure out where you're going with that. Um, I'll wager 45. Okay, going big. Nice. Uh, here is your clue. Imperialism knows no bounds, it seems, as powerful nation-states have sought to claim land far from their home for centuries. In that spirit, where would you find the farthest planted flag from any originating nation? I should say, whether it was meant to claim the land or not. Um, is it the moon? It is the moon! Good old America planted a flag there. You know how we do. Had to get a flag there. Right there on the moon we landed. That's going to be ours. You know, we'll just go ahead and claim that for the good old US of A. There we go. Because there's no place that's not worth owning. All right. Congratulations. You did yeah, it. Um, thank and, you. Yeah. I was looking up, like, how far away is the farthest flag? And it turns out, like... There are flags on spacecraft that have gone beyond the galaxy or beyond the, the solar system. So it's like, okay, that, yeah, of course there are flags like way out there. So I decided to go with like, where, where's the farthest that we've planted the flag? Mm -hmm. uh, so there you go. Nice. Uh, congratulations. 91 points. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of points. Yeah. Well, this was very fun. I was trying to justify my, uh, my baseball guess. It was like, you know, something, something, mm -hmm. Cardinals, something, something, World Series. But they haven't actually played against the Yankees in the World Series in a very long time. Like, oh. 50 plus years. Um, but I think I was remembering pennant races where, mm -hmm. where then it was like, you know, like, there was all this, you know, sort of talk in my New York circles about Yankees. And then, like, somebody else won and played against the Cardinals in the World Series. I think that's, that's how I got there. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. This was delightful. So well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, and thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a second to do that. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potent potables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Uh, our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.